0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Samini. I cover the Jets for ESPN, and we have a great show. The one and only Joe Namath is our special guest in the second quarter. Joe has a best-selling book out right now. It's called Joe Namath, All the Way, My Life in Four Quarters. And I am really pumped to have Joe talk about his book, his extraordinary life, life and football, recollections of Super Bowl three, and of course, the current state of the Jets. You're going to love this interview. Joe was, I think he was into it. He was totally into it. And uh, you got to check out the interview. Before we get started, I just want to say, yes, finally, we are out there, our podcast. We are on Apple, iTunes, Google Play, and of course, all over the ESPN uh, platforms on the ESPN app. And of course, on the website uh, located on the New York Jets clubhouse page. So we're out there. Please listen and subscribe to us if you can. But, of course, we've got big news this week. The Jets have a general manager. Uh, that is the headline. Joe D., Joe Douglas, is the new general manager of the Jets. He will be formally introduced at a press conference on Tuesday at 3 o'clock. And, uh, you know, and I... Spoke to this in the last podcast. I thought the Jets really botched the old Mike McCagnon situation, but they may have stumbled themselves actually into a good situation now because, you know, Joe Douglas is a good hire. You know, he's got a really good resume. He comes from the Eagles. Previously, he worked with the Ravens and Bears. Good resume. I've talked to a lot of people in the league, colleagues of his, people on his team. Who are competitors, and they? I have not heard one negative word about Joe Douglas, and to me, he kind of reminds me he's like the C.J. Mosley of personnel people, and and I by that I mean C.J. was a a free agent who was in total demand. I mean, the Jets were they were desperate to sign him; that they gave him an unbelievable. It was a record-setting contract for a middle linebacker. And Joe Douglas was their CJ Mosley for this GM search because he gets a six-year deal, which is a really strong commitment. It's not unprecedented. A couple of years ago, the 49ers gave John Lynch a six-year deal, but, uh, Joe gets a reported three million a year, which is a huge deal for GM. So he had a lot of leverage going into this and his agent used it to his advantage. And now, uh, he's, he's on the job. He is starting. A little late in the game, but he is starting. And I like the hire. But, you know, with these things, you never know for sure. It's like hiring a really hot coordinator to become a head coach for the first time. You know, you think you got the right guy, but you just never know. I mean, it, you just never know. But the thing I like about Joe, he moved up the scouting ladder. I talked to someone who knew him when he was first breaking in with the Ravens back in 2000. He actually got rejected a couple of times. It took three interviews with the Ravens before they hired him as a low-level personnel guy. And that just shows you the persistence, the determination that he wanted to get into this business. He's held pretty much every job in this business. Uh, I wrote this the other day. He was the guy... When Hard Knocks first debuted in 2001 training camp with the Baltimore Ravens, Joe was the guy in the last episode. He was the Turk who was walking around the locker room informing guys to bring their playbook to the head coach that they were getting, uh, they were getting cut. It's the most thankless job in football. It usually goes to the bottom level guys. And that was Joe Douglas. That was his 15 minutes of fame. Uh, or infamy, as you might want to call it, but, uh, that's how he got started, worked his way up. He is, many people tell me, a scout scout. And, uh, I even spoke to Joe's mother and he said, she said it was always his dream to be in this position. To me, the two wild cards are this his compatibility with Adam Gase. Like, we know Adam is not the easiest guy to get along with. Mike McCagnon could vouch for that for sure, but, Adam and Joe know each other. They worked together for a year in Chicago, so they have some background. I'm told they stayed in touch over the years. So this is not the quote unquote arranged marriage that has blown up so many times in the Jets' face. This is a legitimate relationship. Uh, so that's one thing, uh, that is a, is a total positive. And, you know, you're wondering about how, how is he going to impact the Jets? One, He's an old offensive lineman. He played offensive line in college. I think he's going to put an emphasis on rebuilding that offensive line. And I can tell you this right now. They will have at least three new starters in 2020 on the offensive line. So he will be in charge of that. So that's good news. Mike McKagnon ignored the offensive line. Only three draft picks in five years. So that's why they're in the state they're in. I think he's going to draft guys with an an emphasis on character and football intelligence. Some GMs go for the freaky measurables and the 40-yard dashes. Joe is going to put emphasis on guys who love football, the team captain types. You're going to be seeing him bringing in guys like that, and I think that's great because it creates a culture, and that's the big thing he has to do. He has to create a winning culture. Uh, he was proactive. I mean, he comes from an organization, the Eagles, that were uh, really ahead of the curve in terms of signing players before they get to free agency. And that'll be job number one for him. He's got two big free agents coming up in a year, Leonard Williams and Robbie Anderson. Does he sign them now before they get to free agency, or does he wait? That'll be one of the key questions. And really, this comes down to, look, the job is to get players. We all know that. But really, in this job, when you're the Jets GM, In this situation, you have to galvanize the organization. You have to bring everyone together, and it should get to a point where it's not a Joe Douglas move or an Adam Gase move, or there shouldn't be anonymous leaks coming out saying Joe should have done this because Adam wanted to do that. This should be a collaboration. You look at the best teams, it's all a collaboration. That's where this has to get to. That's why Joe Douglas is challenged to make it work with adam gase the old giants gm the late great george young he said and i'm paraphrasing he goes it's not the systems that fail it's the resistance of the people buying in that's what joe douglas has to do get everyone to buy in that is the end of the first quarter (whistles) welcome to the second quarter this is called the green room each week we invite a special guest into the green room and they don't get any more special than this one. This is uh, Joe Namath, Jets legend, who really needs no introduction. And and we really appreciate you ha- having uh, stopped by, Joe. How are things going for you?
1: Well, Rich, uh, I'm I'm healthy. The family's healthy, and uh, I'm happy to be visiting with you uh, in the green room.
0: Yes, Joe yes. we know you bleed green. And just to remind the folks out there, Joe has a best-selling book out there now. It's called Joe Namath, All the Way, My Life in Four Quarters. And I've read it. It's outstanding. We're going to dive into that. But first, I just want to touch on some current events. Uh, we know how much you love the Jets after all these years, and they just hired a new general manager and Joe Douglas. And he'll be formally introduced on Tuesday at 3 p.m. at the Jets facility. And, Joe, I know you follow this stuff closely because the team is still near and dear to your heart. What are your hopes for Joe Douglas? What do you know about him? And and what are your expectations? I know
1: uh he's a workhorse. He's been around the league for, um, what, 20 years, I guess, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And he's been with successful organizations. uh uh, I know, uh, certainly with the Ravens and the Eagles, and I've talked with, uh, uh, someone that's close to Joe over the years, and I'm excited about it. I, I think, uh, I know, I believe he has the experience, the personality in dealing with the, the players, uh, which are, uh, an interesting breed of guys. Uh, I think he, uh. Has the mentality to deal with them in one on one situations, and uh, he's going to do a good job.
0: The J- this has been a fascinating off season for the Jets. They got so many new players, some big names with Le'Veon and C.J. Mosley, and, and of course, you know the Mcagnan thing comes down out of the blue on May uh, May fifteenth. You know the Jets fire their general manager as as a Jet fan, you know, as someone who follows him closely, what are you thinking when that happens? Were you surprised, taken aback by that move?
1: Well, you know, Rich, going back a long ways now, all of a sudden, <laughs> <laughs> to my jet days, uh, our general manager was our head coach, Weeb Eubank. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and over the years, uh, uh, sticking close to pro football as far as being a fan, especially I know that it's grown tremendously in the administrative end, and it's a part of the business that uh, players uh, aren't that privy of unless they're dealing with contracts with the general manager. And I don't know what transpired behind closed doors between uh, Mr. Johnson, uh, Christopher, and McCagnan and McCagnon And uh, Adam, uh, Gates, I I, I don't know, nor do I care at this point. Uh, You know, I I know ownership wants to win. I know the players want to win, you see, and they're doing everything they can to put together the right people in the organization that can get them to win. And so uh, I, I really believe. Um, they're they're making moves have made moves and the recent move getting Joe Douglas in there is one that uh is predicated on the ambition to win and uh like Ga- coach Gates I think he's terrific uh, next thing is we've got to get you know we have the staff the, the assistant coaches and uh they're the ones that have to communicate with the players so, how good are they? It remains to be seen, uh, because to me, uh, the players, uh, you know, mixed personalities, man, right. with big egos, and <laughs> we're all hard to deal with from time to time. So, uh, I'm only hoping for the best, uh, starting with the guys on the field in a sense, uh, uh, we're excited about our quarterback and, we're excited about a defense, uh, you know, uh, uh, some good things to be excited about.
0: Well, one guy who does not have a big ego is Sam Darnold. You mentioned that you're excited about him, and he, Sam is just kind of a blue-collar guy, and I know you've met him. I know you think the world of him. What do you expect from him in year two?
1: I uh, First of all, he does have a big ego or a demanding ego of himself. I mean, his he knows he can play. He wants to be better. Uh, He's convinced he's a good player and he is going to get better. Uh, So uh, I'm thrilled that we have him on our side. Uh, But all the players have egos, man. And uh, if they're down on themselves, uh, they're in trouble. I think they all believe they can play, but as uh, we used to say when we we just utilized the uh, the video back then with those sixteen millimeter cameras and film, you know the one-eyed monster right. told no lies. You know how you perform, man. You can't hide it when you're out on that field. You cannot hide. And so uh, uh, the, all the guys that have egos, but have to learn to deal with their own individual egos collectively.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about the book, Joe. As I mentioned, this is uh, Joe Namath, All the Way, My Life in Four Quarters, a really unique book because of the way it's structured. It's it's a reminiscence of Super Bowl III, we kind of go through that game in four quarters, and then you kind of weave in your, your life story, basically. And it was fascinating. If you're a Jet fan or if you're a Joe Namath fan or you're just a fan of an interesting life, I mean... W- You've obviously had a ton of opportunities to do books over the years. What was the uh, genesis for doing it now, this particular time?
1: Well, actually, uh, about a year and a half ago, I was approached by Little Brown, the publisher. It was because we had our 50th anniversary coming up, you know, uh, the the championship year, the championship season of 68, and then the championship uh, game. Uh, the super Bowl the world championship in january sixty nine and um, um, I was just convinced that they knew more about the business than I did, and if they thought it was worthy to do, then i was uh certainly flattered and uh wanted to take part in it but having done uh having worked on some books uh certainly for the uh uh, I did uh, working with Dick Schaap, you know, and right. then Bob Oates Junior and uh then a couple of others that uh I worked on. Uh I, I knew it was a, a, a tedious effort, you know. i have not a gifted writer in a in a sense of uh, journalistically uh, uh remember going way back I majored in basket weaving uh, <laughs> in college. Uh but uh, that was tough even for me then. That's when I took up journalism, you see. <laughs> uh, but but uh, uh, I, I, it was really tough, but I really believed, got to believe that it was worthwhile sharing the events uh, uh, that I've experienced in my life. It, it really. Uh, when I say it's not about me, uh, old Joe, I, I, what I'm saying is it's, uh, uh, it's about my life's experiences with people and episodes and, and happenings and, and, and sharing, uh, the tough times as well as the good times and trying to point out that, uh, we can all continue to grow and, 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 if you, if you have dreams man just believe in that if you have the passion to work hard and you can make things happen uh it was a joy rich to, you know thinking back with the uh, the individuals and the teammates that I shared uh various teams with through the years the coaches you know the family where things start with our home environment uh I consider myself very fortunate uh, to still be healthy. And uh, I think the book, uh, it turned out to be a lot of fun once, once we were able to finalize it, but I, I had help, you know, I had help with uh, uh, Sean uh, and uh, Mortimer. And of course uh, my daughter, Jessica was a big help and my teammates. You know, I talked to some guys that would bring back memories. So it, it was a collective effort of uh, several people, not just me, in putting this together.
0: The part that blew me away was when you re-watched Super Bowl three for the book, and I think you said in there that that was the first time that you really watched the game from beginning to end on the television copy, and that struck me as really interesting. I mean, if I were the MVP of a Super Bowl, I think I'd have an endless loop of uh, video in my house watching it over and over again. But was that really the first time, Joe, that you, you watched it? And and why so long? Yes. yes.
1: Well, you know, it was so good. Why would I look at it and uh, come up with some negative stuff? You know, it's like uh, it, when you're a young, younger guy, your coaches tell you, you don't read about yourself. It's usually too good. Or too bad, and it, it, it occupies so much of your mind that it, it's a distraction. And sure enough, uh, when I, when I looked at our offensive plan, not the television part, our offensive game, the film of the championship when we got back to New York, uh, after the, the championship, uh, before the next season, but I, I only saw, uh, some highlights over the years, I never watched a television uh version with Kurt Gowdy and degard De was it that uh right, right. that did it and yeah, and when I did you know uh I went back to the old statement that Coach Bryant made to us when we were freshmen at Alabama. Our coach told us we'd remember the the mistakes, the bad plays, the losses—quicker and remember the good things. And boy, uh, when I watched uh, our team, when I watched myself specifically uh, in that particular game, uh, uh, you want perfection as a as a quarterback, as a player. You 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 want to do it right every single time. And, uh, I didn't throw the ball the way I wanted to throw it every single time. And, uh, that, that irritated me a little bit. But, uh, uh, it was, it was joyful, especially knowing the outcome we want, you know. But, uh, our, de- our defense, I tell you what, Rich, I was taken away with the way our defense was playing. And, uh, man, I, I, that's now our offensive line. The job that our offensive line did against the best defense that at that time had ever played the game was just uh, spectacular. So I was really uh, tickled to watch that.
0: It was obvious. It was definitely a great team effort. And uh, I'm wondering, so that game ends. You're world champions. You shocked the world. No one thought the Jets would win. You stepped out and put yourself on the line with the guarantee Was there a sense of vindication as you're walking off the field saying, I told you so? Was that ever going through your mind?
1: No, no. What what went through my mind is we're there. The AFL, the New York Jets are the champions, man. And that was for those fans that were in front of us. As I was leaving that field, I looked up at that tunnel, the people above the tunnel, that we were approaching, and they were so happy. They were just looked like they were all in Jet Green, man, and their faces and all that. And that was just the finality of the work of the AFL, it was to me. Uh, Right there toward the end, you know, we did it, yeah, finally. Because uh, the first two championship games, uh Green Bay was terrific. They, they played well and, and, and won those two games. And uh, the AFL had been struggling since uh, 1960, you know, to get accepted uh, with our football sports world uh, on a level with the, the league that was already there, the NFL. But we had to win. And if you didn't win, excuse me, you are second rate. You are not the best. You you're not head to head. So we had to have that win, and uh, by God, we did it. Collectively, uh, our team did it, man, and and that was wonderful. And that that's why you know uh, it was just uh, a, a yeah, we needed that so badly, man, and and it, it wasn't. Uh, uh I I don't know how to put it Rich. It, it, it wasn't a vindication of anything, but in a sense it was about our league, about the AFL. Yeah, we measured up. And Lofton said the fourth game, uh, the fourth championship game that was played before the leagues did really merge uh the Kansas City Chiefs put the stamp on it and And we got together when it was two for the AFL and two for the NFL.
0: Well, that game, of course, will resonate in sports history forever. I mean, it's just one of those timeless classics. And the the great thing about your book, Joe, is it's just not about the Super Bowl. It's about your life, you know, growing up in Beaver Falls, PA. That's, of course, right outside Pittsburgh. I didn't know until I read the book. One of your heroes was Roberto Clemente growing up as a Pirates fan. And just interesting stuff about I know this is really quirky, but you used to carry a salt shaker around with you as a kid because you loved. (laughs) You you used to put salt on everything, including watermelon. Is that that real? Absolutely,
1: watermelon, celery, pears, salad, everything. Yes, and and I may have mentioned how I stopped, and it happened to be uh, going to play my last year for Mr. Carol Rosenblum. Mm -hmm. and uh, who was the owner of those Baltimore Colts when we won that championship game. Uh, Mr. Rosenblum uh, and I were having lunch in his place at Bel Air prior to the season, and I picked up the salt shaker, and he said, Joseph, put that down. (laughs) (laughs) I, I said, sir, he said, put that salt shaker down. It nearly killed me. High blood pressure nearly killed me. And he explained to me about uh, his problems that he had. And and having respect for people, coaches, uh, mother and father, uh, mentors through the years, I respected what he said. Mm-hmm. You know, like having respect for Mr. Werblin and, and Mr. Hess, our ownership, uh, especially those guys uh, that knew a heck of a lot more than I did. Uh, I gradually learned to try uh, what they recommend because they're a hell of a lot smarter than I was and am. So uh, I tried it. You know, I tested myself. Uh I wanted to see if I could stop carrying that salt shaker, if I could stop using it. And to this day, Rich, I promise you, the only time I use it, is when I'm with one of my grandchildren in a movie theater. I'll sprinkle a little bit on the on popcorn. The popcorn, I was going to say, That's, yep. it. that's it. There you that's go. That's it, and uh, uh, that's the only time I use it.
0: Well, uh, one of the great things in your life, you've, you've encountered so many famous people, which you mention in the book, but one of the most interesting anecdotes in this book, at least to me, because I'm kind of a history buff, is when you're at Alabama in the early 60s, of course, you know, the the famous desegregation when the first African-American students were admitted to Alabama when Governor Wallace was standing on campus. And you were there. You were like like 40 feet away from Governor Wallace as this momentous event was taking place. And you were friends, I believe, with Vivian Malone, one of the students. And there's a quote from the book, which I thought was really poignant. It said, uh, I've met some of the most famous and most powerful people in the world over the years, but I have to say, few left the impression that knowing Vivian did. Wow, that's a really strong... What do you remember about that day? Just such an iconic day in American history, and you were standing right there.
1: Well, before I met her, I I did infer that she had to be a brave girl. She had to be a strong girl, because uh, it was challenging uh, to to accept uh, that position of being, uh, the first, uh, uh, black, uh, student in, in the university of Alabama. And, and you know what, Rich, it wasn't just the university of Alabama. It was the entire Southeastern conference. Mm-hmm. I mean that, that every university, uh, throughout the South was segregated. Uh, every university that was in the Southeastern conference mm-hmm. anyway, mm-hmm. and, uh, getting to know her because, uh, uh, she happened to be in the same dormitory as the young lady that I was dating and I did we crossed paths and I introduced myself to her and uh we visited on several occasions uh in that dormitory for the most part and became uh, uh well I like to say friends but it was uh, uh not a not a lot of social activity going on away from uh Uh, the dorms and the on-campus stuff. But I just knew she was so, and and when you talk with her and visit with her, she was so sweet, polite, smart, you know, just everything you'd want in a young lady. So, or a young man as well, but a young lady. So, uh, it was was terrific. And Rich, again, uh, my teammates at Alabama Mm -hmm. uh, See, this is one of the things I learned. They were raised in an environment that was segregation-based and didn't really understand or know any different. And the thing was, we went to church together. We prayed together. I knew they were righteous. They were hard workers. And I learned that, you know, it all starts at home. I don't care whether it's Pennsylvania Alabama, California, New Mexico, you move around, New Jersey, New York, it starts in that environment at home with your people, with your family and your people and your neighborhood. And uh, I considered myself lucky to be brought up where I did, where we treated one another with mutual respect. Uh, At least my dad started that out with uh, his children with me. And, uh, that's the way we were taught to treat people. And, uh, I- I'm glad we've come a long way, but you know what? It's still not a perfect world by any stretch.
0: And I got to ask you about this. So you become a famous quarterback and you know, you get to go places and see things and meet people. You got to hang out with Elvis Presley a little bit backstage. And so, I mean, he knew who you were and I'm just wondering, I think your dad got a chance to meet Elvis In Las Vegas, after a show, what's it like hanging out with Elvis Presley?
1: Well, hanging out, there were two specific occasions that uh, I got to visit with Elvis in his dressing room after a performance. Uh, We're going back, though, before that, when I was a fan, man. Uh, As just a kid, when he was doing that blue suede shoes business and Heartbreak Hotel business, and uh, my big brothers were playing the jukebox in the Earl's Dairy, you know, where where I wasn't allowed to go in uh, when they were around, but I'd sneak in and listen to them. Uh, whenever, uh, uh, I guess it was uh, the mid mid to late 60s, uh, uh, when I got to Las Vegas uh, to visit a bit uh, and being able to go see Elvis perform, uh, after uh, the first uh, show uh, that I had seen, uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, be invited to the dressing room. You know, uh, usually uh, the management will let the performers know uh, if there are people in the audience they might be interested in pointing out and that kind of thing. And and uh, so I afterwards I was able to go back there with. Uh, a friend and by god uh meeting Elvis, uh, you know, it 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 was a stunner. <laughs> uh, I'd only heard him for years and had seen him uh you know uh um, with a couple of pictures by that time he hadn't done a lot of pictures at that time but uh he was a big football fan. You see, that's okay. the thing. Know that. He made me feel special. Uh-huh. he made me feel special. He made my my friend feels special. When my dad came out there with me, he took my dad by the arm and sat him down with him on a couch, and they had to talk and just visit. And 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 it was uh, with my father, Rich, it was uh, Elvis saying, well, Mr. Name is this, Mr. at that, Mr. Wow. Name is this, and yes, sir. And yeah, yeah, he was a gentleman, and I uh, uh, just felt so good to have those experiences with him. Wow, we yeah. lost them too early.
0: Of all the stuff you did, like in, in movies and commercials, you work with a lot of great actors and actresses. I got to ask you, just as a uh, curiosity, of all the leading ladies you did stuff with, uh, you know, movies or commercials, who was your favorite or most memorable to work with?
1: Well, there were. There's more than one. You know, when it comes to to really uh, favorites, uh, Linda Evans. Uh, was uh, a wonderful and is a wonderful lady i mean uh, Anne margaret uh, they they were so special they treated everybody uh properly uh and, and you worked for months together uh and it it's it, uh it, it can be a tedious effort but when you've got the passion they had the passion you know they were real artists and uh they they were just uh, great i i i am almost uh floored misty row was uh, wonderful to work with in the theater business you know when i was performing right. on stage uh she she was terrific i, I didn't come across anyone that was nasty mm-hmm. i i promise you i i mean they were all uh wonderful people uh, to me i didn't get uh, I'm trying to see, even coming up with names of,
0: uh... You did the commercial with Farrah Fawcett, and, you know, as a kid growing up at that time, that that was a pretty big deal, that commercial, so, uh, with the shaving cream. So that was a memorable one for me, anyway.
1: Oh, it was for me, too. I mean, <laughs> Farrah was terrific to work with, of course. It, it was, she was terrific, yes. She was a, she was a real professional, and, uh... Most of these uh, adventures that I had with uh, motion pictures, commercials, theaters uh, were, were treated uh, very professionally. Uh, there, there there's some people that are a little more difficult to work with uh, when you're on a football team. You know, where you got uh, 50-some, 60 guys in a locker room. You, you may not all be on the same page all the time, and it's the same thing uh, with uh, the arts but uh those of us that were the, the the smaller players uh learned to deal and go along with how the uh, bigger players felt in theater and, and motion pictures
0: and one of the things i loved about the book is you were really candid in discussing you know your your drinking in the past and your sobriety i thought it was a really brave um you know you you came out really and just bared your soul and just talked about how everything changed in 2003 when you had the uh, sideline interview with Susie Colbert of ESPN. And why did you decide in this just to be so, uh, to be so honest and really, it seemed like you looked in the mirror and you put it out there for everyone to, uh, to see just how truly, how you felt about this.
1: Well, uh, Rich, it uh, depends on the individual and how you look at life, how you look at uh Uh, The people you're around, the the circumstances, and uh, it's no big deal being honest. It's important to be honest. I I say it's not a big deal. It is a a big deal to be honest. And uh, uh, there are secrets that we keep in our lives, things that uh, ways that we may have behaved that we're not happy about or not proud of behaving that way. But I was not embarrassed uh, after... uh, I found out my behavior uh the night uh with Susie Colbert. I was uh I, I was I felt awful for putting her on that spot in a sense, uh because uh I I I, I was out of line. What it, what it is is uh, alcohol became a way of life. Uh no one uh Taught us uh, that it was evil. No one taught us that nicotine was evil until the uh, late 60s, early 70s, man. Uh, You know, the surgeon general, even just putting on the back of a package of cigarettes may be hazardous for your health. Excuse me. Uh, We we didn't know. I mean, uh, drinking, the adults drank, and when you're a kid, you you tried to sneak what the adults were doing, whether it was cigarettes or whether it was uh, tobacco of some kind, chewing, or whether it was alcohol. And uh, the addictive substances in those particular things, which uh, I, I may have pointed out in the book, the two most uh, addictive legal substances that we have, in my opinion, are sugar and nicotine. I imagine there are some other things, too, uh, that may be legal things you can get. But sugar and nicotine, boy, uh, the animal gets addicted to it. And uh, I learned that. And when I learned it, I owned up to it because I, I want people to know. I want my daughters. I want my grandchildren. I want my friends to know that this stuff can kill it. I don't know if I said it in the book or not, Rich, but I stopped dating girls that smoke. I'm I'm talking about there were some really lovely ladies that uh, couldn't give up the habit, and uh, I just, excuse me, uh, I I couldn't buy into the mentality of not trying harder uh, to get over the addiction. And it's uh, again, I'm not proud that I was able to do it. That's a word, pride, that's, uh, you know, that, can get you in trouble or you can, you, you got to understand that where we can be proud of our children uh, accomplishing something or our teammates doing something, but uh, self pride, eh, you know what? We're supposed to do things right. right. And uh, if we're not doing them right, we need to learn how to do them right. Because we represent more than just ourselves. See, that's the thing. I, I learned that, as I went along, I, I didn't learn it overnight, but we represent more than just ourselves, man. We represent our family, our friends, uh, the people we're around. and We owe it to ourselves and we owe it to them to do it the best we can. Yeah. So I, I'm just thankful that uh, I was able uh, to, I thank Susie Colbert. God bless her. When she and I talked after that the next day and she uh gave me uh, some courage Uh some an endorsement okay all right joe come on you you can go do this and uh she was such a lady about that that yeah i, I knew what i had to do and uh, i did it and uh at this stage in my life uh, i i'm very happy that i had because i hang who knows i could have hurt somebody when i was driving a car or i i i, I wouldn't be uh have the relationships I have with my family and friends today, had I still continued to uh, abuse alcohol.
0: And uh, I thought one of the most poignant things in the book, uh, when you talked about Dave Herman and, you know, of course, one of your beloved teammates, uh, offensive lineman, did an unbelievable job in Super Bowl 3 He's been going through a tough time with some health issues and, you know, the the toll that football takes on so many, on these players. And I think it wasn't it kind of seeing Dave through his struggles that got you uh, involved in, in the hospital and, and going through to check, you know, uh, neurological things. And maybe you could just walk us through that and how seeing him struggle kind of led you into, you know, the situation you are in now with the, you know, down in Jupiter, Florida.
1: Well, factually, uh, Rich, uh, we had uh, John Dockery. Uh, my teammate, a uh, wonderful man uh, that uh, was on our championship team, a smart man, uh, you a know, Harvard graduate, you see. Yeah. John was pretty sharp. And he came up to me in the locker room uh, one uh, time, uh, I guess it was about 1971 or something, and said, Joe, I, 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 I want to know if you'd be interested in uh, uh, teaching young people uh about life, uh, by using football, the sport of football. And I said, well, what? Explain this to me, John. And then John and I, and John's brother, Bill, we started a football camp. that ran for 46 straight years, 46 straight summers. And with Winston Hill being there, every one of them up until he couldn't be there anymore. And friends and teammates and players from other teams all being there, well, uh, and about our 40th year, Dave Herman and John Dockery and Winston Hill and, and John Schneider, administrative and we're sitting at a table and uh, Dave just uh, it wasn't planned. But Dave says, look, I, I got to tell you guys something. He said, I'm scared. You know, I, I've got something going on here, man. He says, and uh, I'm worried about it. And it dealt with uh, the head hits that he had in football. It dealt with Dave experiencing some problems, uh, his retention, his recollection, and uh, okay, so he shared that with us, and uh, that was enlightening. But he did it for four straight years. He the next year up at camp, and the next year up at camp, and the next year. He'd come in and hit the first day he'd tell us where he was, how he was not progressing but digressing. I mean, going backwards in a sense. Uh, right. uh, and, and you could see this this strong man. Dave Herman was a beast on the football field. He, he just only knew 100-plus percent, man, and he didn't back down from anything, and he was always prepared. But when he was telling us this, you could – you could see the fear in his face in his eyes, and he's sharing that with us i he, he knew he could talk to us being the teammates and guys that he knew uh very closely and um uh, his uh, sons uh, confirmed the the problem that Dave was going through, and that, that's what that's what uh started me to thinking about my condition or having had. Uh, at least a handful of concussions over the years, uh, I needed to investigate uh, uh, myself. I felt that it behooved me to find out where I was. And whenever I did start the process with uh, the medical center here in Jupiter, Florida, Jupiter Medical Center, and uh, saw that uh, cells in my brain weren't functioning properly, weren't getting the blood flow uh I got lucky and and took a lot of uh, hyperbaric oxygen treatments to where I'm fine today. I'm doing very well. Uh, Boy, Rich, uh, you know, there is so many thousands upon thousands of people out there that get concussions on a daily basis. Kids falling off bicycles or our soldiers, automobile accidents people are in. soccer players, you know, hitting the ground with their head or having that ball hit their head. It's a science that uh, we we haven't caught up with it yet, you see. Um, I know hyperbaric oxygen therapy can regenerate every cell in your body uh, given the proper use of it, but uh, it's not been recognized by the FDA other than for 15 indications, 15, uh, different ailments, uh, that people could have, uh, diabetics, uh, uh, people with carbon monoxide poisoning and just two of the 15, but not traumatic brain injuries. So we're doing a study to try to convince the FDA to look at this study and how it's helped the number of people that we put through the study because,
0: uh, uh, there's
1: too many people out there suffering from traumatic brain injuries, including our military, that aren't getting any help.
0: Well, I do know this. Uh, I was talking to Vinny Testaverdi about a year or so ago, and he had heard about what you were doing with the oxygen therapy. And he actually bought a hyperbaric oxygen chamber for his home in Tampa because he wanted to be proactive about it. He wanted to be preemptive and do what you did. So I think you are having an impact at least on at least on one of your successors as a quarterback at the Jets. So that's and it's great to hear that you're doing well. Every time I see you you look great. You, you know, you never change and you just celebrated your 76th birthday uh, a couple of weeks ago.
1: Yeah, man. I, I still that that this is crazy. Uh rich that's 76. crazy. I mean, yeah, and, uh, I think, uh, I go back to growing up, uh, in high school and college and thereafter, that number, I didn't even think about the 70s. That was so far off, man. You know, yeah. it was so far off. And, uh, then all of a sudden here we are. But what, what again, what I've learned, it's about time. Time. It's a catch twenty two in a sense that you know time flies when things are really going well. It, it only it only drags when something's wrong. So when we look at our time and our lives and say, "Man, that 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 where to it go? It's so fast." Uh, well, we've been pretty lucky. If there's an illness in the family, somebody's sick, business is bad, and all that time time drags. Yeah, seventy six still sounds strange to me, man. Because I, I, you know, it's just uh, it, it seems like a, a big number, and it is because we've lost friends at earlier ages. I've lost teammates: George Star, Merlin Biggs, you know, Johnny Sample, John Elliott, man, guys, Granton. Winston- yeah, they, they didn't live this long.
0: Winston Hill. Uh,
1: we we. Yeah, Winnie, man, you know, it's just Pete Perot, who was an earlier friend of Claire, and our Clyde Washington, man, guys that passed uh, in their late 20s, even. Uh, It's it's a fragile life we have, (laughs) and we've got to be fortunate uh, to be able to uh, duck and dodge some of life's curveballs, is what I call them, and uh, stuff happens, boy, so... We need to be thankful every day and, and deal with uh, whatever spirituality an individual chooses to deal with. Because I do need my God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do. I from that first uh, operation in Lenox Hill Hospital, 1965, feeling all alone wow. and uh, uh, by myself, going through something that got me closer to God. That 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 that. That got me the closest to God at that time, and I've maintained that closeness. Uh, uh, and again, religion is uh, uh, spirituality's important, and, and and people have different names for their beliefs and 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 religions and gods. And I, but as long as we have that <laughs> that spiritual leader, man, uh, we're not alone. And I think it stinks to, to be alone. It's awful if, you, if you're if you alone, man. At least it is for me.
0: Well, I think the dream of every Jets fan would be to see their team in a Super Bowl and see Joe Namath as an honorary captain walking out for the opening coin toss. How does that sound? We get, that done, uh, <laughs> get that done pretty
1: soon? I'll tell you what. It sounds so good. I wouldn't even have to be the honorary captain, buddy. I'd be there and I'd be thrilled. You know, don't need to be on the field. I'm pulling for those guys. And I tell you, Rich, it goes back to the fans. Mm-hmm. You see, back in 1960 when the Titans started, and then they came over to be Jets in what was it, '63? The fans in New York and New Jersey and Connecticut there were Jet fans and all over the country, they're still Jet fans. You know, it, it, we we have players change; they come and go. Coaches change; they come and go. Ownership even changes, but the fans are still there. And uh, we we would love to win another one uh, for all of us. I mean, it, it would be a thrill and a huge thrill for the fans. There's still a couple of teams out there that haven't won a championship, so yeah, uh, they're they're in worse shape than we are. But, <laughs> We get the right things. You know, we got Gates in there right now and I I, I like his style down here in Florida, uh when he was with the Dolphins and uh uh it, it's gonna depend on those assistant coaches and, and, and uh uh our general manager Joe getting things done, but it comes down to the kind of players you get. Right and uh, the leadership on the team and the leadership in the locker room and uh, collectively having the guys on the same page with the same goal and sacrifice to get it done. And so uh, it's not easy because there's (laughs) 31 other teams trying to do it.
0: Well, you guys got it done 50 years ago, and if you're interested in reading about it, you can check out Joe Namath, All the Way, My Life in Four Quarters. It's a bestseller. I've read it every word of it it's it's great stuff on Joe's entire life just not football just you know just stuff in life and it's an extraordinary life Joe I can't thank you enough for giving us this time I know you're a busy man uh, with the book tour and everything thank you so much for popping into the green room you're always the best and I, I look forward to bumping into you at a game this fall
1: well thank you rich for having me and again uh, it, it's a pleasure and an honor for me being a jet Over these years, I don't know where my life would be, nor do I uh, need to worry about that at this point if it wasn't for my coming to New York with those New York Jets. And even before that, having Coach Bryant and my family and Bruno, you know, life's a team effort. You know, you have your team, Rich, right? And uh, life's a team effort for all of us. So let's, let's just be respectful for each other.
0: Well said. Thanks, Joe.
1: Thank you, Rich. Take care.
0: And welcome back. This is the third quarter. We call it the blind side. This is where you guys get to uh, fire questions at me through Twitter. Uh, I love this segment because I think the fans, more than anyone, have a real good pulse on what's going on with this team. The first question comes from T.R. Basta, and it says, What are the odds of Joe Douglas hiring Todd McShay, and could a TV guy thrive in that role? Well, yeah, I mean, it depends on who the TV guy is. Todd and Joe Douglas were actually teammates at the University of Richmond, and uh, Todd was not as good a player as Joe was, and Todd very intelligently decided to go into the scouting business. He worked for a scouting service right out of college and was hired by ESPN in 2006, so he's never really worked for a team before. Which I think could hurt his chances of getting this job, but he I spoke to Todd, he's interested. He's gonna be talking to Joe Douglas around midweek for this position. Uh so I do definitely think there's a chance of him being hired. Second question comes from at Weird Jay Bronovich. Twofold question from a non Jets fan. Uh oh, a non Jets fan. How much concern does the fan base have that Gase has taken so much control so fast? And will Joe Douglas be the man or will Gase's supposed slash apparent ego get in the way? Well, this is the question that we're all going to be watching for now until these guys work together. Uh, Technically, you know, they're on a level playing field because both report to ownership. So one is not ahead of the other in the power structure. Uh, John, you know, Joe Douglas is in charge of the 53-man roster. He's in charge of free agency in the draft. And Adam Gase is in charge of the lineups and the depth chart. So can they work compatibly in, in under those circumstances? Well, the Jets obviously think so. Uh, will Gase stay in his lane? Will he just focus on football? I think, I think he will because now he's got someone he really respects working alongside him. But this is something that definitely needs to be watched. Third question from at Israel IsraelJDMS7. With a new GM coming in, do you expect any big trades, maybe for a cornerback or an offensive lineman? Uh, I think they will be aggressive. But look, I mean, the offseason is pretty much over. It's hard to make trades at this point. I think they'll be looking, but they don't really have a lot of trade chips. He certainly doesn't want to trade next year's first-round pick. Uh, Robbie Anderson, Leonard Williams, Jordan Jenkins uh, could be classified as trade chips, but I don't think the Jets would want to part with any of those. So I don't think they'll make any big trades, but I certainly could see smaller trades for role players. Uh, next question comes from at New York Joe 39. What do you suppose the uh, cost would be for a potential trade for Washington tackle Trent Williams? Do you suspect the Jets will be in the running? For those of you who don't know, Trent Williams sitting out the minicamp. He wants a new contract. This is a seven-time Pro Bowl tackle, really, really great tackle. I've actually stood next to Trent Williams. He is one of the biggest human beings I've ever encountered. He is a great player, but but he will be thirty-one in July. He's had injury issues. He's never played a. He hasn't played a complete season since 2013. He's been suspended. He's got two years left on his deal at 23 and a half million. So it's a lot of money for a player with injury issues who's going to be 31. And I think the Jets like Kelvin Beachum at left tackle for this season. I do not see the Jets making that trade. And the last question comes from at fun running dad how long a leash does joe douglas and christopher johnson give adam gase if the jets miss the playoffs in year one does that make a playoff mandate for gase in year two i can tell you this with certainty christopher johnson will never publicly issue a playoff mandate for anyone in the organization the organization hasn't done it in the past won't do it in the future um it depends what kind of non-playoff year it would be. I mean, if they crash and burn and go 4-12, and 12, uh yeah, Gase could be on a little bit of a hot seat, but he's got a four-year contract. I think it would be an epic, epic disaster for him to lose his job after year one. I think they want to see this through with this Gase and Douglas tandem. That is the end of the third quarter. And welcome to the fourth quarter. This is the Red Zone. A uh, chance for me to share some stories uh, from covering the Jets. This is going to be my 31st season, believe it or not. And, uh, you know, I was thinking this week, you know, with the GM search coming to an end, it lasted 23 days, who was counting. But uh, I'm thinking, how did this compare to some other searches uh, like GM and head coaching searches? I've covered so many of them through through my time on the Jets. And my first one... It's kind of funny. The first, the off season of, uh, 1990, the new GM, Dick Steinberg, was targeting George Perlis, the Michigan State coach. He was a former assistant with the uh, great Pittsburgh Steeler teams, and he wanted him to be the Jets head coach. But jo- uh, George had some weird thing in his contract at Michigan State. That he needed a, a approval from the board of trustees to leave the uh, university, and so we're out covering the Super Bowl in New Orleans, and they were having this board of trustees vote on George Perlis's future, and I, five or six jet beat writers are gathered around a speaker phone in the press room at the uh, media media center, and. We're listening to this play by play that someone is giving us. This is before Twitter, by the way, so we couldn't follow on Twitter. And we're listening to these board of trustees. These, you know, these stuffed shirts are basically voting on George Perlis, whether he can get out of his contract and become the next coach of the Jets. And it was just a a really odd. It was like an introduction to the Jets beat, which was really odd. And I guess it was a foreshadow. We got things to come. But, um you know, the postscript there is that George was voted down. They didn't let him out of his contract. And the Jets ended up hiring Bruce Coslet, which didn't work out so well. Uh, my favorite coaching search, 1996. This is a true story. I have not shared this with too many people. Um So it's the end of a bad year in 96. We all know Rich Kotite's going to get fired. I'm at the Daily News Christmas party in New York, and the word gets to me that uh, we got an anonymous tip at the Daily News from someone who claims they were sitting in a meeting with owner Leon Hess, uh, an oil—he was an oil baron, uh, Hess Oil, and he was—this was an oil meeting. And Hess said in the meeting that his plan was to hire Bill Parcells as his coach, and if that failed, he was going to hire Bill Belichick. Now, we all knew about Parcells being a a possibility, but no one to that point had thought of Belichick— as a plan B option, I ran back to the office. I worked the phones all night. I could not get a confirmation on that. I called everyone I knew. We couldn't print it. It seems so outlandish that I didn't even want to mention it as a rumor. Like who would hire Bill Belichick at that point as a head coach? And fast forward a few weeks later, one o'clock in the morning, I am sound asleep. I get a call from my colleague at the Daily News, Gary Myers. We had been working on the story for weeks. Our Deep Throat source called Gary at 1 in the morning and said, I just want to let you know they're hiring Bill Belichick tomorrow as the head coach because they couldn't get Parcells out of his contract. I won't reveal who that Deep Throat was, but I got out of a sound sleep, ran to my laptop, wrote a story in about 15 minutes that was on the back page of the Daily News the next day saying that Bill Belichick was going to be the next coach that damn tipster that anonymous source was right weeks earlier and i couldn't confirm it it was it's one of my biggest regrets i wish i had confirmed it because it would have been a heck of a story we all know how it turned out bill belichick was not the coach they did get bill parcells and belichick became his right hand man but jet coaching searches and gm searches man you just never never know well, that's the wrap on this week's show. I want to thank our special, special guest, Joe Namath, for popping in. I'd like to thank again uh, Jeff Scopin, our producer. And just a reminder, the flight deck, we are on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, and all the ESPN uh, platforms, the website, the app. Please give us a listen. I think we got some good stuff here. And thanks for popping in again. Just remember, when in doubt, don't punt. Go for it.